0: Hi, and welcome to Episode 11 of Sacred Science, Gleaning Wisdom from Science and Religion. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rabbi Jeff Mittelman, Founding Director of Sinai and Synapses, which bridges the worlds of religion and science. What happens when long-held wisdom changes based on new knowledge? How do we think about technology as not just iPhones and Zoom, but fire and writing and the whole history of humanity? We explored those questions and more with Dr. Samuel Arbesman, a complexity scientist and research fellow at the Long Now Foundation. He's also the author of the books The Half-Life of Facts and Simplexity. This conversation was recorded on February 23rd, 2021. So I want to start because I... I I read your book. It might have been now almost ten years ago of uh, of the half life of facts um, with this idea of the knowledge that we have has an expiration date um, right we in two thousand and three Pluto was a planet, and then in two thousand six it wasn't a planet or um the, what different dinosaurs existed or didn't exist or what we know about dinosaurs or as, as you bring up of um, all the health Recommendations of smoking or red wine or chocolate—that we think about facts as as a collection of immutable pieces that are never going to change—and and so being able to say, wait a second, there's a half-life to those facts; they're gonna they're gonna lose their accuracy over over time. That that's actually that may be a little bit unsettling for for people, particularly over the last you know five or six. Years as conversations about what is truth, what are facts, that's, you know, that language has actually become a little bit politically charged. So how, how do you define a fact and, and what does it mean if a fact changes?
1: So those are very good questions. And yes, it it has become very, uh, very relevant. I guess in a few years after the book came out, um, people are talking about this even more than I expected. Um, Yeah. I mean, what, I mean, what we know and what facts are, I'm kind of using a combination of like, what are the facts of like the state of the world? Like how many billions of people there are on the planet, things like that, as well as like, what, what are the, what is the current state of our knowledge? Like whether or not Pluto is a planet, what dinosaurs look like. do we think they're like these weird reptilian monsters do we think that they're kind of fearsome chickens with feathers and being brightly colored like which has changed even in my own lifetime in terms of how we think about it Uh, and yeah and i think when when people are confronted with this constant churn it feels very overwhelming like oh my god i thought i was supposed to have my baby sleep on their their stomach and now they're supposed to sleep on their back or i thought uh, red wine was good for me or bad for me and all these things are constantly changing and so and because of that people then say so much is changing, therefore, I'm just going to kind of tune it out. And, and, I, and I think the response to that is actually say, well, let's take a step back. First of all, we have to think about how do we actually learn things over time? But also, like, are there regularities to how knowledge grows and changes? Because then if there are regularities, that can affect how we actually respond and how we continue to learn things. So, for example, I would say in terms of how we, how we learn things, one of the ways to kind of think about this is to look at the rate at which different kinds of facts change. And so there are some things like little bits of knowledge that change really, really rapidly, like what we think, like what the weather is going to be um, tomorrow or what the stock market closed at yesterday. Like th- those kinds of facts, those bits of information we know are constantly changing. And so we're well adapted um, and we're, we're used to kind of constantly updating our mental model of this. Then we have facts on the other extreme, facts that change effectively never, like um, how many continents there are on, on Earth or how many, um, how many fingers there are on human hand. You learn those things once and you're good to go. Um, but in between, there's actually a whole bunch of knowledge, which is things that change on the order of like decades or even the span of a human lifetime. The problem though, is that we often learn those facts in the same way we learn facts that we think never change. And so these kind of middle class of facts, which I call the meso facts, um, these things encompass things from like, like whether or not is a planet. Um, and by the way, this is not the first time that planets have actually been demoted. Um, so in the mid, mid 1800s, when asteroid, when the asteroid belt was first being discovered, like the first few large asteroids were actually included as, as part of the planet. So I think like Ceres and some of the other large ones were included and then people realized, oh wait, this is part of a larger asteroid belt and then they got demoted. And so this is not the first time this kind of thing has happened, but recognizing that we have to constantly kind of update, otherwise we kind of get blindsided, I think is a really important fact. Uh, really important, I guess. Not quite facts, but a feature of how, the way we have to think about knowledge. Um, because otherwise, we we end up perceiving knowledge in sort of a staccato fashion. Um, because and that has to do with the way in which we um, in which we learn. So like when we're young, we're, we're treated as little generalists. So we um, we learn lots of different things about many many different areas. Like we learn about geography and science and history and and all these and like, uh, all these different topics. But then as we get older, we specialize because we're trying to learn a specific field. And so we end up updating all the information in our specific field, but still maintain all the other knowledge that we had until the next generation, we're confronted by information from the next generation. Like our kid comes home and says, guess what? Dinosaurs are warm blooded and kind of small and have feathers. Um, And so even though knowledge is actually changing pretty steadily, we often perceive it in this kind of stepwise fashion. So which means we need to be much more attuned to actually updating our knowledge over and over. And I think this kind of actually goes Hand in hand with recognizing the way in which science operates, um, like science, I and mean, even though yes, there are a lot of things changing, science does have a core. There are things that have not changed, um, and but the reason we perceive everything changing is because the discoveries and like scientific advances are not actually they're not being made in the core necessarily. They're often being made at that frontier where we know the least, but where the most exciting things are happening, and those are the kind of things that we read in science journalism and like popular news where these are the things that are being overturned constantly. That's where, where the churn is. And so, I mean, that's where science, that's the most exciting stuff. That's where scientists want to be. But if that's the only part of science that you're looking at, then it actually can be very overwhelming. Um, but I think even beyond that, we have to recognize that, um, well, first of all, well, there's two things. One is that like science, it's not just science is not a body of knowledge. It's really more, it's a, a regular, it's a rigorous way of querying the world around us. And yeah, and that's going to create changing knowledge. But that's like, that's also like, that's the most exciting part of it. And actually there was a um, uh, a professor from when I was in grad school. He told me this story that um, he, this is already after I had left and I had come back and he and I were chatting, um, but he was teaching some course. And I guess he came in out on like a Tuesday and he said um, some, some, he relayed some information I think about um, theoretical ecology. I don't remember the exact thing. Uh, and then the next day he actually wrote a paper that overturned everything he had read or that he had taught the, the class. And so he went on a Thursday and he said, Remember what I told you on Tuesday? It's wrong. And if that bothers you, you need to get out of science. Like the whole point is like, we have to recognize science is constantly in a draft form. But at the same time though, and I think this is the most important thing is that even though there is a churn, ultimately there is sort of this asymptotic approach to the truth that overall we are approaching more and more clear understandings it's not that oh this thing was correct and then suddenly it's wrong and then now it's correct again therefore like things are just kind of going back and forth and we can never figure out what is true overall we are learning we have better tools we're collecting better data more people are involved in the scientific process and so overall we are we are getting to a kind of better view of the world And actually there's this great um This great quote from Isaac Asimov. So someone had written to him and they said and and basically they were making this argument saying, oh, like people used to think the earth was flat. Now they think it's uh, then they thought it was perfectly round. Now they realize it's maybe this kind of like oblate spheroid. Like, how do we know anything is true? Um, Like if it's constantly changing. And so he he has this this great quote. He says, um, when people thought the earth was flat, they were wrong. When people thought the earth was spherical, they were wrong. But if you think that thinking the Earth is spherical is just as wrong as thinking the Earth is flat, then your view is wronger than both of them put together. And so you have to recognize, like, yes, things are changing and that's exciting, but it shouldn't be unnerving. It should be in in part of recognizing that we are constantly getting closer and closer to a true understanding of the world. And yeah, there's, I mean, we should. Any, any, uh, any bit of information we receive, we should have a like healthy dose of skepticism and we should make sure though it doesn't veer into an un- unhealthy dose, dose of skepticism and suddenly saying like, oh, because one time that other thing was thought to be wrong. Therefore, I'm just going to throw everything out. And I'm kind of throughout the entire scientific process, recognizing that we are constantly moving forward. It's still a very human endeavor. It's not perfect, but it is, it's actually this pretty impressive thing where science as this endeavor is it involves imperfect humans, imperfect processes, but it is constantly perfecting itself and getting closer and closer to hopefully a true understanding of the world.
0: Well, and, and I like the way that you're talking about it. and It actually reminds me of, of a little bit about a, a phrase that I use about even theology. Um, there's a professor— that I like uh, named Stephen Goldman, who's written some books about um, the, the history of science and scientific knowledge, and he, his book is called um, "Science Wars: What Scientists Know and How They Know It." and And his last piece is he talked about the uh, things as a, as as a scientific object. So there's things as they are in reality with a capital R, and there's what we understand about it right now. And so the analogy that I like is the Earth has been whatever the Earth has been over its four point six billion years right we have no control over what the earth has been but our understanding of the earth of what the earth is has gotten better and better with better measurements better understanding better uh processes it's becoming a, a better understanding of what the earth has been which which by the way they could find out new information about it um right i think it's I think it's unlikely, but it's certainly conceivable that we could find out. No, the Earth is actually six billion years, or three billion. Or there, there may be that's not outside the realm of possibility. I think that's probably unlikely because that's been uh, confirmed. But you know what we know of of the Earth? Okay, is four point six billion years, and then it was. Well, how did the continents move? And and well, the the idea of continental drift that wasn't accepted. that it was, and and so our understanding of the Earth has gotten better and better, and you know, there's whatever the earth has been in reality, but then there's the earth as a scientific object. And it's the same kind of thing of atoms or the sun or Pluto, right? Pluto is like, Pluto doesn't care if Pluto's a planet or not. It's our definitional element of it. Um, And that's kind of how I I like to view God in this kind of way of God is whatever God is, Um, right? We have no control over that, but our understanding of what God is, our understanding of our relationship with God, that changes as we find new data, new experiments. Oh, I thought, I thought life went this way, but actually, nope, you know what? I think God might be more like this. It allows us to hold on to these kinds of truths a little bit more loosely and not be threatened when there's new information that comes in.
1: Right. And I, I agree with you like that, that keeping these kind of, this kind of information loosely and like, and it, it's very much about like the perspective, like, as opposed to feeling threatened whenever we learn something new, um, being like excited that we learn something. Like, it's like, oh, like, there's so much more to learn. And actually, there's there's this um top this idea from, I guess, it's like social sociology of science or philosophy of science called, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it's the, the pessimistic meta induction of science, which is, OK, we recognize like we have a really good understanding of the world. But guess what? Everyone else. And like over the course of science has also thought the exact same thing. And they haven't been right. Like we've actually, we constantly learn and like, that's okay. Like it's, it's, it's actually wonderful to like realize how much we've learned sometimes so quickly. And I, I can remember this, I think maybe when I was in college, there was, I was reading a, um, uh, an obituary about some, I think Nobel, like Nobel science, Nobel laureate scientist. And it mentioned that he discovered some, um, some organelle, some like part of a cell And, and I remember like when I learned those things, they were like very much part of the textbook. Like that was the core of knowledge. And like the fact that someone in my own lifetime had discovered these fundamental things, like for some people that it it would sound, oh my God, like there's like, like there's so much we don't know. And like, yeah, it could be overwhelming, but it's also, it should be like, oh, this is amazing. There is so much we have left to learn. There's so much we already know. Like this should be exciting. And I think like having that sort of science, like the perspective of a scientist in every aspect of our lives should actually be really, like, it's, it's really important. And I think can be very empowering. And so as opposed to just being overwhelming, i like, oh my God, like, is there anything we truly know? And yeah, there are many, many things we truly know, but we're constantly improving and
0: that's great. So, you know, what, what's interesting and I want to, I want to tease something out. There was a great article last week by Adam Frank, who is an astrophysicist, um, for a great blog called 13.8, it's now on Big Think, and and he talked about the the lawsuit against Fox News um, that came up, and and the and the lawsuit. If you if you've seen it, I if I remember, it started off with two plus two, two equals four, the Earth is round, Joe Biden received more votes than Donald Trump, um, and right like these are all facts, and and one of the things that Adam Frank talks about is that they're actually three different ways of thinking about truth and facts in this kind of way. One is a mathematical truth that is always going to be true. One is a scientific fact that actually people might not have said that 3000 years ago. And the other is a totally social fact that exists only because of the definitions that we've created in our American society right now. So are there differences? We talk about all three of those in this lawsuit, which I, I think... Was a very powerful lawsuit, but it's conflating all different three kinds of facts. When in fact, they some may change, and some you know some are going to be debated in different kinds of ways.
1: Yeah, so I I agree. Like, yeah, there's many different types of facts and bits of knowledge, and I think that often, um and, and there are differences. We shouldn't like minimize them. Like, so another another interesting like I guess uh, um, category of facts is like linguistic facts, like facts about what is. Like what the definitions of words or what is grammatical, what is not grammatical. That's it's not like in anyone's head. It's sort of this like population average of whatever like everyone in a of, of everyone who speaks English or whatever language we're talking about does. And like that kind of thing can shift over time. So like that's another category of factor. Like there's a whole bunch of different ones. I think the I think the power behind kind of unifying them all is recognizing that oftentimes in our just everyday lives, we bundle them together in how we think about these things. Um, where we think, okay, these things are unchanging, but in fact, sometimes they change, sometimes more, but then saying, okay, we have this overarching category, but let's begin to kind of taxonomize and say, okay, yeah, what are the different kinds of facts and bits of information, like mathematical facts? These things, unless there's kind of an error mathematical knowledge is really only it's like the ratchet a ratchet like it's only moving in one direction like we're like it's never like oh we're gonna learn two plus two equals four and then we'll realize oh wait maybe it's actually two like equals like 3.9 like no that's just kind of like it's a definitional kind of thing like a triangle is defined as having three sides like that's just that's it um and so uh but and, and so recognizing that kind of fact versus other ones and so like linguistic facts in terms of how these things kind of shift over time um and recognizing what are the ways in which um improvements in our tools can modify these bits of information. So like, for example, actually with, and going back to like the earth is round and Isaac Asimov in that essay, he actually um, shows the amount of error that each different wildly, like, like wildly different view of the world. So the earth is flat is like qualitatively different than the earth is round, but you can actually say, okay, how much error is there in like, versus kind of the reality of the earth. Like, like let's look at like the amount of error in like the earth is flat. The amount of error in earth is perfectly spherical versus an oblate spheroid. And you can see like, it kind of, the amount of error reduces over time. And so there's kind of this interesting version of recognizing that, okay, these different, these different facts imply completely different mental models, but sometimes they actually can uh, also imply this constant like improvement in like asymptotic improve, improvement of what we are measuring around us. Um, so that's a, a long way of saying, yes, I, I I agree with you. Like I think there are multiple different types of knowledge. And I think part of um how we think about knowledge and facts is like recognizing the differences, both in like like their their categories, but also the ways in which they can be subject to change. Mm-hmm. Um which I think will give like, which also can help people avoid being overwhelmed like okay like yeah there are certain things that like we kind of know like it would require a huge amount of contrary information to, to overturn so, like the earth is around like there's I, i'm not even sure i can kind of think of information that would like over, like overturn that i guess <laughs> pun unintended um, but at the same time though like saying oh like what would i need to know um to 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 make like I don't know, like broccoli could be considered some sort of like, low level carcinogen or whatever. You're like okay, oh, yeah, I can kind of imagine some sort of like double blind study or whatever. And like and so kind of recognizing the kinds of like new bits of information and knowledge that we that we would need in order to overturn those things, I think actually can be really useful. And so like so for example, um, like one one category is like in terms of like better tools to actually study the world around us. And so like, which was involved in Pluto, like as we got better telescopes and were able to discover more objects beyond the orbit of Newton, or Neptune, we realized, oh wait, there's a lot of these things out there. And Pluto is just kind of one of many, and some of them are actually bigger than Pluto. Um, and like another example, so my grandfather, when he was in dental school, he learned the wrong number of human chromosomes. He, he learned 48 instead of 46. And it was because someone didn't have as good of a tool, like as good of a microscope, and was not able to actually measure and count as accurately. And so, so you could say, okay, we think we know this thing well, what would be required to overturn that? Well, maybe it's just better tools, and then you can actually get better And so, or like, what is the what is the exact height of Mount Everest? And at a certain point, not only can you measure Mount Everest perfectly um, or very very carefully, but you can actually measure it so carefully that you can realize that not only is it like is it exactly this height, and we kind of know empirically that it's the tallest mountain in the world, but we can actually know that it cha- that its height and its position on the earth actually changes slightly over time because of like, plate tectonics or because of erosion and things like that. And so like, as we learn, as we build more and more tools and figure out what are the um, like the boundaries of like, where our knowledge can change, then we can actually learn more. So I actually think, yeah, so like recognizing the different categories and the different ways things can change um, is really important for kind of bounding our uncertainty, but also giving us new directions for how we can kind of continue moving science forward.
0: Well, and I I like this idea of of it's where the boundaries really come up because that's also so much of Judaism is about defining boundaries that, um, you know, one line that I like to say is that Judaism helps us turn from the analog into the digital, right? Like, how do you know that somebody becomes an adult, right? You watch a child grow up and you don't look back and they're like, ah, that now they were, now they were a child. Now they're an adult or, or, you know, somebody's partnered if somebody's married and saying like ah well i didn't love this person now but now i do right but we need to be able to say okay now at this moment when you say these words at this time there's a legal change of like you were a child now you're an adult you were um you were single now you're married or or questions also of of death of you know what makes somebody alive or dead those are different questions as well but uh, you know a lot of these questions of when does the sunset, which is an astronomical, or when does the moon go around, and 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 so many of the ethical questions that we're grappling with as technology has improved, and I'd love to think a little bit more about your work on complexity. That a lot of the questions of technology, um, that's where there are new boundaries, and we've got to say what 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 is the ethical, what are the ethical boundaries of this, right? It's not just what's the technological boundaries, but is it okay to to use CRISPR or Cas9 technology to use this or not that? And the reason that you're asking is because it's on the boundary and we don't know yet. And
1: I, and I, and I love this idea, like this boundary of like, like boundaries and definitions, because oftentimes as we learn more, it makes us reconsider the boundaries that we have. So like going back to the Pluto example, yeah, like we kind of thought we would kind of know what, what planets are. Like these things of like a certain size orbiting the sun. But then as we learn more, we start realizing that like, there's kind of counter examples that make those definitions break down. And we have to kind of like rethink, okay, like maybe these definitions are not really good. And you see this kind of thing actually in like philosophy of biology in terms of how how do we define a biological species? And like there's kind of like the classic one of like, oh, it's like like two two creatures are of the same species if they can like um, mate in the wild um, and produce like viable, I guess like fertile young. Right. Um, yeah, and and the truth is like then you can like think of like all these counterexamples, other ones, and like it turns out there's like multiple different um, de- definitions of species, and the truth is like I'm not really sure anyone is like any specific species, like species definition is like exactly correct, um, but they're like they spur us to kind of think further about the biology and like speciation and what does it mean and how do we understand evolution. And, and so for me, like, yeah, like these boundaries and stuff like that um, maybe they're permeable and maybe they're not, but either way they get us to kind of like think much more carefully about all this and, um, and, and, and learn new things. Um, now, of course in Judaism, sometimes like the boundaries are kind of like a little bit more unchanging, but they can still kind of force you to say, okay, like, w- let's figure out like at those, like, at the boundary cases and actually going back to like related to technology a lot of discussions in jewish law are around those edge cases like edge cases are one of the things that technologies have to deal with all the time it's like it's very easy to deal with like a calendar that has 365 days but then you suddenly have to deal with oh like what about leap years and like other things and like yeah and like all these weird examples and like a lot of different like questions within jewish law are around okay let's say some like uh, Like, I forgot, like there's like the classic example of like, oh, like some animal that's kind of like one foot inside something, one foot outside something like, and then like kick them out of the academy or whatever. But like, it's still like, these kind of questions are
0: really interesting because they help you elucidate how you should be thinking about these things. Mm -hmm. Right. And and that's, and there's, I mean, there's almost a scientific kind of way of thinking about this and, 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 and it's not just these silly what if, and, um, and, and look, you know, they, we've been watching, my wife and I've been watching, um comedians in cars getting coffee and, uh, and watching Jerry Seinfeld. And they're talking about um, comedy and math. And I remember hearing that actually it's also very similar with, with Judaism too, because Judaism, there's, there's a lot of history of, of Jewish humor, but a lot of these kinds of questions though, like what would happen if, And that's there are so many mathematical ideas and definitional questions, but that's also the premise of every single comedy bit of what would happen if such and such happened, and you play out what are the implications, and and that allows you to really say here's what this means at its core.
1: Right. Yeah. Like what it means is core, and also like where our intuitions break down, and like where it breaks down is often something really weird and sometimes funny and like you realize oh wait that was kind of like the resist assumption but now it, when i take it all the way to its logical conclusion yeah that doesn't accord well at all and then it results in like, uncomfortable laughter sometimes which right, is that's right that's
0: well and and you know your your other book about about complexity and about overcomplicated that you know i'd love to tease out a little bit of when simplicity is a, is a virtue and when it's a vice, and when is complexity a virtue and when is it a vice? Because they're not necessarily purely like simple is good, and, but there are some pieces where if something's oversimplified or overcomplicated, that's really, it's, it's, it's either it, it, um, it creates a binary thinking or it makes us throw up our hands. So when, is, when are those different aspects yeah. valuable?
1: Yeah. It's a great question. And so there's like this quote from Einstein, which I, I'm not sure if he actually said it exactly this way, but like the kind of the, the classic thing is like everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. And like, and I feel like that's like, that's sort of like the the quick and easy way to describe it. But I think, I mean, really when we think about like, just like building a technology or building a model of a system, we have to think about, okay, what, like, what is the goal of the thing we're building? And like, and, and also whether or not the complexity in that system is essential or accidental. Um, And so like the goal, like, so so going to like the goal part and I'll get to like that essential versus accidental um, when you're building, let's say a technology to kind of handle something or a model, let's say a physics model or whatever. um, If your, if your goal is just kind of have like a certain amount of understanding or maybe some intuition into some overly like much more complicated system, then like a simple model is actually really powerful because it it says, okay, we're going to simplify some things. And we're going to try to figure out what are the core features of some system that we actually need to be, need to be focusing on. I and mean, sometimes you can go a little too far, which is when you have like the joke where like the physicist is like, oh, assume a spherical cow. And like, you're like, right. Right, that's ridiculous. But at the same time, though, um, I think like even those simplifications, like even if they kind of end up breaking quite hard away from reality they end up showing you okay what are the things we should be thinking about so like whether it's model organisms toy models like these things are actually really important for helping us like trying to trying to think or they're often like simple little mental models but when it comes to like building a technology that has to like operate in like the real messy world then you actually do need complexity and then the question becomes okay is the complexity you're building in is it essential or is it accidental? And so, like the but what, what, what I mean by essential complexity is this idea of like what is the like what is the necessary complexity to mimic or to handle the real world, like like the complexity of the real world. So I mentioned like calendars before. Um, like a calendar is a technology that is trying to handle a very messy fact, which is that the like the number of days that the Earth goes around the Sun. Is not exactly a round number. Um, it's like it, you, and it's not like exactly. It's not 365 days exactly, like 24 hours exactly. It's like a little bit more. And the thing is, though, and so that was like so. The, the fix was the leap year, um, which gave us like the Julian calendar. But then people realized, wait, it's not because like the Julian calendar was recognizing that um, that it was 365 and a quarter days that it went around the sun. Um, then people realized, wait a second, it's not actually exactly a quarter. It's like a little bit different than that, which mean, which meant like several hundred years ago, we had to adopt the Gregorian calendar, which was like, okay, we're going to do leap years most of the time, but not some other ones where it's like, okay, it's like, I think it's every year that is divisible by a hundred, but not also divisible by 400, then does, is not a leap year, like something crazy like that. Yep. And, and so you have to like, cause you're, you're just removing a few. And, and of course now we have leap seconds and all these different kinds of things. And yeah, like that's really complex and messy. But the reason it's complex and messy is because that complexity is essential. I have another technology is like self-driving cars. And self-driving cars, the technology underlying them is pretty sophisticated, but it's also sophisticated because they have to deal with a whole variety of sophisticated conditions. So it's one thing to say, okay, I'm gonna have a car drive in perfect weather, like down a straight highway with no other traffic. But then some of you include other cars, pedestrians darting out, one-way streets, um, bad weather, and like all these different edge cases and complexity of the real world conspire to make sure the technology is really, really complex. Now, that's different though. Like, that kind of is essential complexity. Then, um, but then that's different than like, the complexity sort of like accidental where it's like a system has like accreted complexity over time just because it's easier to kind of add things to a system rather than like start from scratch. And so um, and so, I feel like, yeah, like when things are complex, when they don't need to be, that is a big problem. And like, and that's kind of, and, but at the same time though, like we don't want things too simple. Um, and, and you see you see how people think about simplicity and complexity dep- based on like the terms people use in terms of like their, like, like the connotations. So like for example, um, in mathematics, if something is elegant, like it's often like, oh, it's like simpler than people thought possible um but sometimes though like it's not always possible to be elegant and i feel like this is often like the way and going back to kind of science and how we think about this oftentimes the most like the elegant models um are the ones that were like discovered earlier on in a field because that was when like we had all the low-hanging fruit available to us not always i mean like you think about like in terms like going back to like the models of the solar system we had like like you had the kind of like the um earth-centered one, and then you have, like, epicycles upon epicycles, and it kind of got more complicated until people realized, oh, wait, we can just kind of flip it and make this on the center. That being said, though, um, like, the Copernican model of, like, exact circles doesn't actually work that well. It doesn't actually accord with the things. We right. And then, like, Kepler was like, okay, we actually have to begin doing these ellipses. And, like, and he actually was, I think, kind of unhappy with the fact that there were elliptical orbits because he wanted things to be this, like, nested platonic solids. Like, he wanted it to be really elegant. And so, so when it comes to Elegance and simplicity and complexity. If something is too simple, or is so simple that it doesn't actually map onto reality in a way that we want, then then it's like, then it needs to become more complex. Now, sometimes you might want to say, okay, like this is a simple model. We know it doesn't actually accord with things, but it helps us think about something. Going back to like the toy models, that's useful. But like, yeah, we have to still make sure that that when these models or technologies interact with the messy real world, they should actually be able to handle it in all of its complexity
0: and i think the other thing that's 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 really complicated is that the more humans are involved the more complicated it is because you know as you're thinking about self-driving cars and thinking about let alone one-way streets and what what language is it in right is it in is it in arabic is it in french is it in english right and being able to understand those different pieces and uh but there's also the ethical questions that come up of of you know if it's if it's going down in this kind of way and if it's going to careen um is it going to try to kill the pedestrian or is it going to kill the, the person involved? And then there's also, right, like you don't know if that person, if the, if the car rams into a tree pole, are they going to survive or not survive? Right? There's all these really complicated ethical questions that exist um, that are, that are not as simple as like Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics. So, right, right. Like they first do no harm, right? It's, well, right means, basically all of his short stories about the three laws of robotics are really
1: kind of like long ways of saying, guess what? These three laws have lots of edge cases and ways of breaking. Right, um, right,
0: and that, yeah, yeah. and I think okay. Oh, well, I was going to say,
1: in terms of like, yeah, like when we are dealing with other humans and like human built societies and civilizations, and just kind of all the infrastructure that we have, like, yeah, then things get more complex and also more ethically complicated. At the same time, though. I think we have to recognize that and we should not have necessarily like, kind of like un, unreasonable expectations of our technologies. And because like, so I remember when at some point when I was um, uh, when I was like working on Overcomplicated, um, my wife was reading a draft of it. And so, and um, I think she was like reading it in the middle of the night and she like woke me up and she's like, our self-driving car is going to kill us all. And I'm like, no, they're, they're not. But like, we're going to discuss this in the morning. Um, but one of the things, but, but my argument with that is like, like self-driving cars, like one of the reasons why we're kind of concerned about them is because when there are these, like there are these complex algorithms and models, um, oftentimes we don't have any insight into what is going on inside them um, versus like the fact, like, like what are, like, what is the cutting edge for a lot of driving right now? It is this, it is a, the human brain, which is incredibly complicated. We don't really have a sense of what's going on inside of it, but we're used to it we've been right. dealing with other minds for millennia and so because we're used to it even if we are irrational inscrutable capricious like we're like it's okay because we, we kind of know how humans do their thing but when it comes to these like new technologies it becomes a lot more worrying and, and and so i think and and to say like therefore like if we don't have a perfect understanding of these systems therefore we should never use them i think I and mean, in some cases that might be true. But in many cases, it's okay as long as we have some understanding. And I, and I feel like this is, this is one of the arguments I make in my book is about um, recognizing that understanding our technologies and large systems, it's not like it's not a binary condition. It's not either like total ignorance or complete understanding. Like there are ways of kind of moving up that ladder of understanding, saying, okay, we can understand a certain subsystem very well, or we can understand how the different pieces kind of overall interconnect. And even if we don't fully understand, like that's okay. Which is I mean, that's the way biologists approach like biological systems that are enormously complex or neuroscientists try to understand the human brain. Like we just kind of have to kind of have this iterative approach constantly trying to improve. And like, and I think part of this is I and mean, I think I discuss like in my book about like technological humility, like recognizing like, it's okay to not necessarily be able to understand all these systems around us. Like, and I feel like we have almost this like, like um, cognitive triumphalist attitude of like, okay, like, and, and maybe it grew out of like the enlightenment who knows of like, Oh, we can understand lots of things around us. Therefore we should be able to understand everything. And like, yeah, I would love it if that were true and I really sincerely hope and we should and we should not give up. But like it, it's okay if we don't fully understand everything at every single moment in human history because we're going to build complicated things and actually part and one of the interesting ways of trying to understand these systems is actually building other technologies to help understand things. And so there's been I mean, over the past few years a lot of work around like explanatory AI where it's like using like artificial intelligence tools or machine learning or various other tools to actually try to interrogate it and under and like look under the hood of these systems to try to understand what is going on and so and and so in, in some ways it's like we've kind of created the problem but we've also in creating this problem with technology have also created the solution so i think there's a lot of really interesting possibilities there
0: yeah and actually you know one of the things that that a couple of our fellows, we have this interfaith fellowship and and one of them is doing work on um, actually Islam and artificial intelligence. And one of the things that's that's interesting and challenging is what would happen in in either, um, for example, Jewish law or Islamic law of being able to use explanatory AI like of, of an algorithm, like I have a halachic question of Jewish law and I'm going to type it in and the artificial in, like in this black box, right? Because we can understand how rabbi the rabbis thought about these questions or or how islamic scholars have talked about this i think many of us would feel deeply uncomfortable um following a a, a, a decision from a from from jewish law of coming from spitting out of a, of a black box of a of a computer here um but is that is that you know is that going to Is that going to happen? And on some level, that may be a little bit easier because there are going to be more and more edge cases that we're going to have to deal with. We may not be able to answer all the specific kinds of questions that we're grappling with. Um,
1: Yeah, no, and I think, I mean, yeah, you definitely want, um, yeah, I would. you want to have like more explanatory power with all these kind of things. You don't want to have like an oracle that just like spits out answers. That being said, though, like when I kind of look at my children and how they interact with technology like the Amazon Alexa and things like that, like they- seem pretty comfortable with this kind of like oracular approach to technology where like it just does something and I don't really know why. Um, and so I feel like it's, it might be incumbent upon like the current like like adult generations to realize that like we have to actually work hard to make sure these things are understandable before this next generation grows up and just doesn't care at all. And that being said, I think like, and for most of us, there are many situations where we just like, all of us don't care how technologies operate. And like they, and oftentimes the only time we realize that like we get a hint of how things are working is like when things go wrong, like when there's kind of like this gap between how we thought the system was going to operate and how it actually does operate. I mean, like iPads and iPhones are these like sealed pieces of like glass and metal. Like we don't really know what's going on under the hood and those things. And like, and, um and for many cases, like we're okay with that. And I think it's, it's the weird situation is not just when, um like each of us are not okay with it, but like even when the people who are building the systems themselves don't fully understand how these things work, then we have to realize, Oh wait, like, Something, not, not that something's gotta give, but like we have to maybe strive a little bit um more to actually kind of figure out how these things operate and how they sometimes don't. Because otherwise it's the kind of thing where people just kind of blissfully go through their lives and like, oh yeah, we kind of understand all these technologies until of course they break down and then kind of too late. So we have to kind of realize right now that we need work to try to understand these
0: things. Well, and and I think there's there's a line that I love um that that is so simple, but it's but it was kind of revelatory to me which is that technology outpaces ethics and that and that comes up in, in a variety of different ways the technology almost by definition creates a new situation in the world that we've never experienced before so we don't know what the ethical questions are going to be because this technology is brand new um, and the other piece too is that particularly with with ethics ethics are are, are really done in in um, in, in in like boards. So you know, if it's if it's if it's a if it's a religious ethics piece, it's a response committee from the rabbinical assembly or the Orthodox movement or the Reform movement, or um, you know, it's the medical review board, or um, or it's politics. And you know, one of my favorite examples is that is that so many of the laws that we have about internet privacy came from uh, the Privacy Act, which I think was written in 1974, um, and 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 so. Being able to, when we create these new technologies, you know, this example that that you, know, be, you think about it in the conservative movement or the reform movement or the orthodox movement, very often, you know, you ask a question and it goes to the committee and they have a subcommittee and they talk and then they go back and they debate and, they, and then 18 months later, they come up with their response. And at that point, the technology is totally irrelevant here. Um, I was yeah. amazing how fast COVID, they were able to, to make some changes on COVID. But a lot of these things, the technology is so much faster than what the ethical responses are going to be. So I, I, I agree with you that I think like, yeah, technology it moves
1: very rapidly and like and so yeah, sometimes like the, the ethical responses can be slow. I, I think one of the ways that I've seen of like actually getting ahead of the technology, um, and this is going to sound kind of weird, but I actually I, I feel this way is is science fiction because like mm-hmm. oftentimes when people kind of think about okay, what are the ethel, uh, ethical, legal, societal ramifications of a technology, it's often like. It's often in response to some technology. But science fiction, not only does it kind of do this more holistically, it often says, okay, let's try to extrapolate outwards. And let's not just kind of think about what are the new kind of like cool like whiz bang technologies, but let's like embed them in the world as a thought experiment and then figure it all out. Like say, okay, let's actually see what this does and then how people respond and then how next people respond and like kind of look at those multi order effects and see how it goes. And of course, they're not necessarily going to um, be the exact answers, but I think it's going to be the kind of like, oftentimes fiction raises questions of like, okay, in these situations, how do we want to be thinking about these kinds of things? And so hopefully by the time technology is even somewhat like somewhat spiritually similar to the things that we now have, like that are kind of spiritually similar to like the things in the stories roll around that we can say, okay, we at least now have a framework for beginning to think about these kinds of things. And so, um, and and I've seen this actually even like within, um like within Jewish law, like, like there's like some very, like very interesting examinations of like, okay, let's think about like the science fiction implications of like Jewish law on other planets. Or um, when we deal with like extraterrestrial intelligence and all like, like I mean, these are like very, are out there kind of things, but like, are, sometimes they're taken kind of like they're explored tongue in cheek. Sometimes they're explored more seriously. But it kind of gives us a like a suite of possible ways of thinking about them, um, which I think can be really helpful. And so we're at least so then we're not constantly just like playing catch up to the technology.
0: Well, that's it. you know that was someone asked because we actually talked last week with an astrophysicist and, and somebody who said that the the this question of Earth based with the with the potential of life on other other planets that you know, another galaxy would have its own history and story. And, and as we're trying to think through, um, you know, we landed the perseverance on the Mars Rover. We're recording this on, on, uh, February 23rd of 2021. So just you know, a couple of days ago, the perseverance landed on the Mars Rover. And I think that's, some of these questions are, you know, what would, ha- what would happen if, and you know, what would happen if, and it allows you to be able to, to push these edge cases, um, and then be able to say, um, "Oh, you know, this is like this story that we read. This is like this question that we that we brought up." And you know, they, there's there's the example that comes up now all the time that I've been seeing from a lot of places of the self-driving car um, of the parallel of the ox that gores, which is in in Exodus and, and pages and pages of Talmudic discussion um, of being able to say, "Wait a second, there have actually been people who have talked about something that." We can't get into its brain because we don't know its brain in this kind of way. It's designed to make our life easier. It is likely to hurt somebody at some point. So who is going to be responsible? There's actually wisdom from that from 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago that actually can help us shed light in some of these questions that we're grappling with now. Yeah, and I love this idea of like having just kind of like a rich set of analogies that can be drawn upon and
1: say, okay, like, how, like, how does this analogy, like, how does it, like, where, where does it fit? Where does it break down? And like, it helps us really kind of tease out, yeah, like the edge cases and the new situations and, and drawing on this rich tradition as opposed to saying, we constantly have to start from scratch and like realizing, oh, wait, like, we, I there are many things that are qualitatively different, but there are many things that also have similarities to other things. And you can kind of put things together and recognize the ways in which they're similar and different. Now that's it. Yeah, so that, that is fantastic. I love that.
0: Well, that's – and and I'm, I'm a big fan of the the series Black Mirror. And, and one of the things that they talk about, you know, about technology, I'm sure you've seen it or you know of it, um, then one of the things that they talk about, which is that they're not technology questions. They're human questions just manifested in different kinds of ways. Yes. Yeah, I and mean, which is – I mean,
1: the truth is, like, I mean, that is
0: basically storytelling
1: <laughs> all all the way down. I'm like, yeah, they're all human questions. But by, by creating like, new scenarios and saying, okay, how would people – Operate in these world like like where where would people do the things we expect? Where would they break? Like and like where does society like work? Where does it where does it break down? Like yeah, these are the kind of things that, that yeah we like using these these questions like using scenarios and and storytelling can help us crystallize. Yeah, what are the the, the core features that we should be thinking about? And actually, which goes back to a whole like model making and simplicity versus complexity. Saying okay, what are the relevant details that we should be focusing on when we think about new technologies and being able to say okay here are the specific features that are most vital for figuring out how we make decisions. That, that That's really important. And so being able to kind of do that as an exercise, even now, before we have these technologies is really useful.
0: So I'm, I'm curious if there are particular technologies that you're seeing or that you're excited about or that you're nervous about um you know, because you are you have much more expertise right we're lay people so we're either excited or terrified about everything but you and and don't know what actually we should be feeling about these kinds of things what are a few pieces that you're seeing that you think are likely to be making a, a big impact on our on our day-to-day life or our society in the next maybe three to five years so i
1: so one area would be around like Computational creativity of like computers and like AI that are almost like that are like that have some sort of creativity of their own. And do we see this with like? And we've already seen it with like was it OpenAI's uh, GPT three like the like the text generation like natural natural language processing engine that can generate very human readable text around things, and it doesn't seem like immediately like gibberish. Um, I, and I think as we kind of look at these tools um, or like tools that can kind of create art. Um, Figuring out how we think about ownership, or um, what is truly creative, or how do we rather, like? And and one of the things that, that I've begun thinking about in this kind of space is because oftentimes when people get concerned about it, like oh my god, um, computers are going to start writing novels and making beautiful art, and like all of these like artists and creators are just going to be out of jobs. And I and I think I am maybe in a hundred years down the line, I, I don't know, but but certainly in the near term, like the the more interesting thing is this like human-machine human machine partnership when it comes to creativity. Like, how can we use computers and AI to kind of allow for more different types of creativity, whether it's scientific creativity and, like, the kind of experiments we want to ask, whether it's the kind of, like, kind of thing where as I'm writing a novel, it will help suggest certain ideas or phrasing that I want to use. And so I think, I mean, yeah, there's many ways to, like, be worried about it. And I think there's, like, a lot of really interesting dimensions to explore. And I, I, for me, I, I love seeing all the new things that are coming out. But it's also really exciting to say, okay, when we have these tools, how can we use them to make even different things than we could have otherwise? So, um, yeah, I would say certainly like computational creativity and like, it's yeah, it is a fascinating space and one that I, I love looking at.
0: And that's, you know, I know that IBM's Watson has been doing a lot of work on, you know, doing creativity and, and particularly like in the medical field. And, and what I think- um,
1: actually, was one I think it was um, called Chef Watson and actually
0: generated new recipes
1: um, like like for like for cooking and
0: like and it was like
1: combining unexpected ingredients in novel ways. It's so, like yeah, there's really exciting. things.
0: <laughs> like, yeah, Watson has been used in some really kind of wild and interesting ways. And I think you know what 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 people remember from from Watson now, which was ten years ago, which was that they that it beat it crushed the two greatest Jeopardy players there of, of Ken Jennings and Brad Rutter. But what I actually think was the most interesting thing from that was. Um, th- They asked Watson to put its money where its mouth was. Right. How much are they? How much how certain were they about the answer? And they and and the final jeopardy, they Watson did not know the final answer, but it had five figures and it risked only twenty seven dollars of being able to not just know what it knew. It knew what it didn't know. And it said this is something that we that that that. Our AI system is not certain on this, which is helpful if you're dealing with a with a medical professional who has seen all sorts of different things, right? Not just necessarily trust the AI, but to say – for the AI to be able to say, hold on a second, I'm not – this is my suggestion, but really don't trust me on this. I don't really know, right? I'm going to rely on you and your expertise here. That's a really powerful, uh, powerful combination, yeah, no, I, I I like that a lot. And I think also
1: one of the uh, another way of thinking about this kind of thing is also recognizing like, I mean, yeah, we can say, okay, like eventually computers are like machines are gonna be making discoveries we can't fully understand, but also recognizing that um like they like we are the ones building these machines. And so like even though like it's it's it, and I, I have written about this where it's like I, like we can have this like vicarious pride in like nachos, like the like Yiddish term Like It's okay. Like, like, like my kids, like their their successes are not my successes, but I can still have, like, I can shep nachos for, for what they do. And like and I feel like it's the same kind of thing with our machines, that like we can have a certain amount of like technological nachos in what they do. Um, and maybe that is like a very small amount of of joy in the face of like, oh, we're not gonna understand these things further, but like recognizing that um can help us like, it like also shows that, yeah, like, like that, that whole, like the, the whole idea of like, yeah, may, maybe no one person knew could, could could perform on jeopardy nearly as well as Watson did, but presumably that like, like, like recognizing the uncertainty and like that was programmed in by people. Right. And, and, and so saying like, like that was a really insightful and clever thing to kind of include and recognize, okay, like, like there's a certain amount of uncertainty and recognizing your limits and things like that. Um, is really great and i, and I think and, and there's also there's nothing wrong with like recognizing our limits like it's okay um like we can work in partnership with all these things um even if it's only sometimes having an office in their creations
0: well and that's and, and that we you know when we think about technology we tend to think of you know iphones or artificial intelligence or things like that but technology of just the definition of being able to change the world as it is right not you know it, squirrels are not creating technology in the way that that humans are um that's very rooted in our evolutionary history but it's also very rooted in our text of you know it's one of the very first things that happens in in genesis of of god commands adam to work and to tend the garden Um, even the garden even before they are kicked out of the garden of eden god tells adam i want you to change the land here i want you to to use the shovel and to be able to to change what is happening in the world here and there's a level of of pride of being able to say i am i am creating this here yeah and
1: so this and when um yeah when we think about technology yeah i agree with you like oftentimes when people think about technologies it's like oh like what is the newest iphone app or the newest release of some laptop or whatever it is like the newest thing that apple is going to release but like yeah technology is much broader than that and actually and and so um the computer scientist alan Kay, he has a quote he has a definition of technology is like Technology is anything that was invented after you were born. And it like because it was like, like that's how we but like the truth is like and, and he and he was obviously meaning it flippantly, um, or like kind of like recognizing like technology is much broader than that. It's not just like these new computers and things and like the newest phone. It's like toasters and pencils and paper and, like, the, the alphabet. Like, these things are all technologies that we that we have used to, yeah, to alter the world around us, to sometimes all alter the way in which we think about the world around us. And so, um, yeah, recognizing that, like, technology, it's not just, like, Oh, kind of like the big bang of like computing in the forties or whatever, and then since like it's a lot broader than that. And recognizing that there's all these different dimensions upon which we can kind of continue doing technology um, is, I think, something very powerful.
0: And and you know, what's as as you bring this up, I'm remembering that an idea that that in some ways technology is advancing rapidly, but in some ways technology has actually stayed static. Um, you know, that if you were to if you were to get on an airplane. 60 years ago versus getting on an airplane now, it actually would be pretty similar, right? If you get in a car right now, it's actually going to be pretty similar. It's really in the in the realm of information technology that's that's advanced so quickly. But all the different kinds of technologies of you know your kitchen appliances and how they work are not going to, are not that different. Um, you know, somebody said you're born if you were born in 18. 70 to 1970, right? That 100 year difference, is a massive change. But, but, um, but you know, from from uh, 1900 to two or 1910 to, to 2010, there would be many fewer changes that you would see. Yeah.
1: And so, this, I mean, like, and the, the economist Tyler Cowen talks about like the great stagnation of like, okay, like, are there kind of has there been a stagnation in like technological development? And, and I think, I, mean, I think actually he's even. Written about how like more recently it seems like things are kind of speeding up but i but i but at the same time though and people have discussed this from different dimensions like i'm not sure we want to like give the informational information technology such short trips like you mentioned like yeah cars externally they might kind of seem like their basic shape and their basic structure is pretty pretty similar but at the same time like modern cars they're not like they're machines but they're essentially like massively complex computers on wheels. Like they have, I think like tens of millions of lines of computer code, which, and they are running things. And the truth is even like like some cars are actually qualitatively different. Like they don't actually run on gasoline anymore. Right. Right. And so, so I think, um, I, I agree with you, like in some aspects, but at the same time though, like, I think like the, like the software component, um, I think really has changed things. Actually there's, there was a, um, there's a computer, one of the early computer scientists, Edsger Dijkstra, he he wrote about um, how computing and like computer programming has this like radical novelty. And he was saying how like, if you look at like the speed that people walk versus um, like the speed of airplanes, it's like a few orders of magnitude. Like it might be like a thousand times faster or whatever it is. Um, But if you look at like, like a single bit versus like the amount of, um, computing power, the amount of information storage in a hard drive, at a moder- modern computer nowadays, it's like a huge number of orders of magnitude. And he, what he was and what he was driving at is like c- computing. Yes, it like it it seems like kind of part of this kind of linear thing of like okay, we have software now and all the other things that we have, but like in some ways, like they're actually like like almost like a mind-boggling, like mind-bogglingly more complex than we can fathom, and and a lot of that mind-boggling complexity has like filtered into all the different machines and things and and even some like household appliances that like have have very sophisticated computers. Sometimes they're connected to the internet mean for good or for bad. But like um but I think and so I I would say like one of the things that I think we don't realize is like how complex our like information technology truly is. And I this it it was brought home to me when it was I think it was around the time the Apple Watch came out. It might've been like a few months after it was released. This is not like a number of years ago. Um, it was in like the style section of the Wall Street Journal. And they were talking about like fancy mechanical watches and like the discussion of like whether or not people will still buy mechanical watches. Um, and the answer is they still will. But um, but in the article, they, they had this quote from this one guy saying, yeah, like, of course I'm gonna buy a mechanical watch. Like when I think of like the intricate complexity of a mechanical watch, as opposed to a, like a smartwatch, which is just a chip. And I remember reading that, like just a chip. This thing is like, Orders of magnitude more complex, like, like, like hundreds of thousands of times more complex than a mechanical watch. But it's but you've been shielded from that complexity. And I think going back to like simplicity and complexity and how we think about this, be, because we have been shielded from so much of the technological complexity around us, we don't even realize how much there is. And so, and so when we look at all these technologies that we've built, they do feel kind of similar to the things we've had for like decades and decades but that's because there's been so much work making sure it doesn't feel that different, even though it might be much more safe, have all these other features inside them. And so, um, yeah, so I I agree with you that like there have, there has been like certain aspects of stagnation, but at the same time, though, some of it's, it feels that way because we've been shielded from the the huge amount of complexity and progress that's been made in information technology.
0: And, and, and the interplay too, of, of the biology and the physicality, right? Like we, like we are, Homo sapiens sapiens, as we understand it, you know, that's two hundred thousand years, two hundred fifty thousand years old, we'll say, and and civilization is what ten thousand years old, and and most much of the technology is this the last ten years. So a lot of that, I think, is for better or for worse, trying to be able to tap into what what is our deep human connection in this kind of way. um You know, there's as as uh but I don't remember who said but someone said, but you know there's a reason that the the computer mouse is about the same size as a rock right because that's what our our human hand is going to be able to have um and and being able to know what are the what are the limitations um and and being able to to maybe even See behind that, but see see behind the veil and see the incredible human work that's been done. And by the way, how much has been done in terms of societal facts? Of right, one reason that cars are so much safer is because of different regulations, because of of seat belts, because of airbags, because of speed limits. You know, there's right, and that's also behind the scenes, and that that is also a form of technology that we don't even think about.
1: Oh, totally. And I think the one. The one nice thing though, I, there's many nice things, but like one exciting thing though is like, even though, yeah, all these things are changing and yeah, there's kind of like this massive mi- mismatch of time scales of like, yeah, like, humans have been around for like this amount of time and like c- civilization's been shorter and like technology's been even shorter is as humans, we are unbelievably well adapted to dealing with massive amounts of change. Like, I, So I remember, um I mentioned my grandfather earlier, like the one who like learned the wrong number of chromosomes in, in dental school um, He Um, and he, he was a, a science fiction reader for like his entire life. Um, he like read science fiction basically through like the entire like dawn of like the entire like modern genre. And so when, when the iPhone came out, um, I remember I went with my father and my grandfather to the Apple store and we're playing with it. And he like, look, and he's like looking at it. He's like, this is it. This is the object I've been reading about for all those years. And it's real now. And like, we've gone from like that sense of like wonder. of like, Oh my God, this is an object dropped from like, our imagination and like, and like the stories of the future to, oh my God, why can't it do this specific thing? Why does it stop? <laughs> like, right. like we, and so, so yeah, and for better of course, like we just don't even realize like how wonderful these, these things are because we're actually really, really well adapted to change. And so, and I think that like speaks to some pretty powerful features of, of humanity, which is nice
0: it really does and and thank you for for taking some time and, and illuminating us on some of these complexity pieces and how our our world changes and and the need to be able to be adaptable and to be able to recognize that the things that some of the things that we hold true they are going to be hold true forever some are going to be for our lifetime and some we need to be able to say that may that may change right this is this is something that's going to be um okay and being being able to know when do we need to totally adapt and when do we need to stay grounded in in what we have um, and, and being able to recognize what's what's the the inherent complexity and what's the accidental complexity um so thank you for the wonderful wisdom that you brought for us here this afternoon
1: my pleasure this was fantastic
0: thank you for listening to this episode of sacred science and we hope you enjoyed our conversation with sam arbisman you can find him on twitter at arbisman Our guest on our next episode will be Rabbi Jonathan Crane, a scholar of bioethics, comparative religious ethics, and Jewish thought and food ethics at Emory University. I've been your host, Rabbi Jeff Middleman. Sacred Science is a production of Sinai and Synapses, and is part of the Judaism Unbound Network. Sacred Science is produced by Jeff Middleman and edited by Rachel Pincus and Zach Jackson. And to find all of our previous episodes and guests, you can find us at SinaiAndSynapses.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're interested in more conversations about religion and science, including articles, blog posts, and upcoming events, you can visit SinaiAndSynapses' website or follow us on Facebook or Instagram at SinaiAndSynapses, on Twitter at SinaiSynapses, or me at Rabbi Middleman. You can also find out more about Judaism Unbound and its offerings at judaismunbound.org. Thanks for joining us. We hope to see you again soon, and tuv, all good things.